This is the Midweeks. Hello and welcome. I'm glad you're here. It's a Friday for me at the time of this recording. And so if you're listening to this on a Friday, I hope you have a great weekend. I want to do two things today. I want to continue on with going through 1 Corinthians. And I'm excited about this passage. It's one of uh, the passages in this book that has really caused me to think and impacted me. And then I want to completely nerd out by talking about medieval cosmology for a little bit, if you have any idea what that is. So let's talk about 1 Corinthians. We're at the beginning of chapter 4 now. And remember, Paul is wrestling with this church, this church that's kind of got divided allegiance. Um, They're believers in Christ, but they have a lot of their culture and their culture's ways of evaluating. And uh, they have a lot of personal pride that still needs to get dealt with. And so that's, if you want to summarize this book, you could say this is a proud church and they've got a lot of work to do. And so Paul is just working through different issues that they have as a church, and he's working on bringing them repeatedly back to Jesus Christ and the gospel, the lordship of Jesus, and the wisdom of God in the gospel, but this gospel that undercuts human pride. And so he keeps bringing them back to this. And so uh, the next little phase that I want to work through this book is in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, where Paul begins to kind of apply things to himself a bit more in there in for them to uh, really walk as Christians in the church. And so he says this. I'll, I'll read the scripture here. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condom- commendation from God. So commendation, not condemnation, two different things. So what's going on here? So Paul um, is dealing with this division that's come up in the church because they have decided that it's really important to um, evaluate each other and form little groups around who's the best teacher. And that was part of Greek culture. You know, there'd be lots of philosophers in the day and people would become uh, adherents to philosophical schools or something like that. And then they just divide themselves over whose teachings they follow. And Paul is trying to undercut that by saying, you know, we're one in Christ. And so you don't divide yourself over Paul and Apollos and Peter. And so he's trying to give them a new mindset instead of having them think of church teachers as these kind of philosopher kings or these gurus that you join groups of in order to combat against other groups or to at least feel proud of who you are associated with like some kind of kung fu school or something like that. Instead, we're supposed to see um, apostles and teachers and pastors as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, just a little side note, when it says mysteries of God, it's often 
in English, when we use the word mystery, we think of something that can't be understood or a mystery that needs to be found out. We say, oh, it's a murder mystery. We don't know who did it. Or, you know, how does gravity work? You know, it's a bit of a mystery. We don't totally understand. And, and that's fine. But for Greek, and especially in Paul, uh, a mystery was something secret that is revealed to a chosen group of people. So they would have these things called mystery cults back then where people would go and participate in these, these secret rites and learn secret knowledge, kind of like the Freemasons today. And you get these secret, secret knowledge, and by learning these secrets, you become more spiritual or closer to the god of this system or more likely to um, become liberated from your body at death and not have to go through cycle of reincarnation or something like that. These mystery cults where you learn secret knowledge in order to become more spiritual. Now Paul takes that word and he rejigs it in the Bible to make the mysteries of God um, secrets that God has kept but has now revealed through Jesus. So the fact that God was going to come in his son and die for his people was prophesied, but it was prophesied in a way that didn't totally share the idea so that it was totally clear. You know, it was prophesied that, that the servant of God would suffer. It was prophesied that a son of David was going to reign on the throne forever. It was prophesied that a prophet was going to come. And so if you know the truth and you look back in the Old Testament, you can see what's going on there. But at the same time, God's counsel was somewhat hidden. And he kept it a secret. And through the preaching of Jesus, we understand the mysteries of God now. So it's not hidden knowledge. It's actually revealed knowledge. That's what a mystery means. It means something that was hidden but is now revealed. And you don't have to go through secret rites to understand this. these mysteries. They're actually being proclaimed to the world through the, the gospel and through the apostles. But this is what he means when he says they're stewards of the mysteries of God. It's stewards of these truths that God has kind of kept secret or kept his own counsel about, revealed partially through the apostles, through the prophets' writings, but nobody totally knew everything that God was going to do, um, or the fullness of it, except when Christ came. And so these mysteries that Paul's talking about here is the mystery that, you know, God's wisdom was going to come through foolishness, God's power is going to come through death on a cross and the weakness of this, and that all human pride was going to be challenged and undercut and destroyed because God's strength and wisdom went through, came through human weakness and human foolishness, and yet this is the power of God and the salvation of God. So this is what he's talking about when he says the mysteries of God. It's these things that nobody could have ever guessed. Even though God prophesied it, we never would have put it together the right way, and we couldn't truly understand. But now we do understand by the help of the Holy Spirit and by the hearing of God's word. And so he's saying, don't see apostles as these super philosophers or these like gurus that show off their strength and brilliance. Instead, they're just stewards of Christ. They're just servants of Jesus Christ and stewards of, of truth. And then he says, you know, moreover, it is required of stewards that be, they be found faithful. And then he wants to kind of explain what he means by that, because not, what he's not saying is that it's a steward's job for everybody to be happy with them. When you're a steward, you're meant to please your master, right? And so Paul is going to do a little pushback on human judgment here, or quite a bit of pushback. And he's going to inform the church in Corinth that he doesn't care what they think of him in one sense. So he says, it means very little to me if I'm judged by you or anybody else. And in fact, I don't even judge myself. So he's talking about this whole world of merely earthly judgment. Um, he says, I, I do what I can 
I've set myself up to not actually care about human judgment, yours, a human court, or even my own. When you're a servant of Christ and a steward of God, it's his opinion that counts. It's his judgments that count, really. And people are small and foolish and weak, and their opinions, so they, they share them very boldly and powerfully and, and emotionally sometimes, and they might attack you and judge you very strongly sometimes. These human opinions are, are destined to perish, and they don't mean that much, especially compared to God. God's opinion is the one that counts. His judgment's going to be the final judgment. So Paul's actually living there, and he says to the church, you know, it doesn't actually bother me that much if you judge me, whether you're judging me the best apostle or the worst one. If you want, if you love me, or, or you want to kiss me, or you want to kill me, it doesn't really bother me that much because I'm a steward of God, and I'm serving the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't love them and care about them. It doesn't mean that he doesn't grieve over their sin. It doesn't mean he isn't hurt by their rejection of him. He's going to talk about it. You guys are like kids to me, and, and you're rejecting me. Um, it doesn't mean he doesn't care in that sense, but it means he's not going to be controlled by it. It doesn't mean a lot to me. I'm not going to respond out of your judgment. I'm going to act like a servant of Christ and a steward of God's mysteries, no matter what. That's his commitment, which is something we really need to hear because in, in North America, we love to be influenced by people's judgments. Um, and it's only getting worse with the Facebook culture and the Instagram culture and, and the so social media culture, which has allowed us to be constantly exposed to people's judgments, whether they're direct criticisms by comments or whether it's just being always awash in people's opinions and criticisms about things we might like or hate or whatever it is. We just are, are drowning in this sea of human judgment. And Paul says there's another way. There's the way of doing all that you can to only care about what God's opinion is. Now, some people take that idea and they, they become real jerks with it. And they say things like, only God can judge me and I'm going to beat you up and, <laughs> and I don't care what you think. And they use it as a tool for cruelty. And usually they really do care about what people think. And that's why they're so cruel. But they say, oh, only God can judge me. Yeah, he will actually. And so we need to live in fear of him and the fear of the Lord, knowing that he will judge us. But if you get it right, where you're like, God's my God, and he has saved me through Christ, and I love him, and he loves me, and he's called me to serve him, he's called me to love people, then you can feel free to just take your heart and say, God, I, I really want only your judgment to be the one that lasts. In, in my opinion, I want to be driven by your thoughts, I want to be driven by your judgments, and not controlled by human courts. And it's interesting, he says, I don't even judge myself. Why? He says, I can't even totally trust my own judgment. You know, I could uh, accuse myself of something God isn't accusing me of, and I could also declare myself free from guilt in a way that God wouldn't. He says, I, I don't even want to be my own judge. I just want God to judge me because I can trust him through Jesus. And then he ends and he says, uh, so don't pronounce judgment before the time because Christ will return. He'll expose what's really going on. And at that time, people will receive their commendation and this is really cool because he doesn't say people will re receive their condemnation on that day. He says people will be con commended. And so it's almost like he's trying to humble them. And he's saying, you know what, you, you, you probably aren't even in a position to, to totally judge because you don't know what God's doing in people's hearts. You don't understand their motives. You don't understand what God is working on. And so there's a sense where every Christian needs to live a bit open-handed with judgments on people because we don't totally know. And that doesn't mean we never make decisions, we never have boundaries, we never say no to people because you can make educated guesses, but we don't seek to make definitive judgments on people while they're still alive or before 
Christ comes, and even then we can be open-handed before the Lord and, and just know that he's alone is the only one that knows everything that's going on in somebody's life and heart, where their faith is actually at, and where their behavior is actually coming from, or everything they've done. Only God knows what people do when they go into their prayer closet, right? So here's a good moment of just being able to humble ourselves before the judgment of other people. You know what? I'm God's servant. Humble ourselves when we want to judge other people. You know what? Only God knows. And until he's revealed everything, brought everything to light, I don't totally know. And there's a hopeful note that people who are living in faith in Jesus, they will receive a commendation from him. And you will too, as you're living in faith and serving him. So this is actually really encouraging and a good antidote to how we often find ourselves living. All right. Let's talk about medieval cosmology. Um, one of the great gifts I got this Christmas is a book from a gift exchange. We did a book exchange and somebody threw into that book exchange a book called The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. And I had wanted to read that for a while, but never wanted to buy it. And so just under God's providence, I ended up with this book and I've been reading it fairly devoutly and really the point of the book is to try to explain how medievals looked at the universe um, they stood on the same earth as us and they looked into the same sky but they saw very differently than us and so i'm interested in this for two reasons number one i'm interested in this because uh, the medieval world was about half of the history of christianity has occurred during medieval history somewhere around 500 to 1500 is like their medieval period roughly so jesus was born around zero and a lot of stuff happened and right around the 400s 500s um the roman empire kind of fell apart which started kind of the dark ages and this time of the roman empire having been ended before something happened that ended the medieval period as we kind of try to divide up human history um, lasted about a thousand years and the church has been around for two thousand years and so this is a long time that people lived in a way quite differently than us or saw the world and the universe quite differently than us and so i just want to kind of get it you know i want to get this the way people thought back then but also you know i'm a big fan of c.s lewis's chronicles of narnia and he worked in um, to the books his kind of the value of what he saw in the medieval world and so i just find it really interesting okay you're probably bored already you know what you can end this podcast whenever you want to but i want to do a really brief summary just even for my own sake of how they kind of saw the universe being put together as reflected in the discarded image by c.s lewis who was a real actual genius for this kind of stuff and a great scholar in it all right so he's as he describes it he saw that when philosophers or uh, poets and authors put their thoughts together. And this was really heavily influenced by this guy named Aristotle, if you care about that. But he said, you know, you start off with the basics of these things called the four contraries. The four contraries. And the four contraries are hot, cold, and dry, and wet, or moist. Hot and cold, dry, and moist. And these four contraries pair up to create the four elements. So hot and dry is fire. Hot and wet is air. Cold and dry is um, water. Sorry, is earth. And cold and wet is water. Those are the four things. Water, earth, 
air and fire, cold and wet, cold and dry, hot and wet, hot and dry. And they kind of saw this is the building blocks of um, the earth. And their idea was that these four elements, and there's one other element they called ether, which is kind of what everything in space was made up of. But anyhow, their idea with these four elements is that they tended to try to find their place. You know, they tried, so they'd look at the world and they say, you know, heavy stuff falls down. They didn't have a concept of gravity. They didn't call it that, of just mass being attracted to mass. But they th thought, you know, people, these, these elements try to find their place. So Earth is kind of, their, its place is at the bottom, and so it falls down. Water's place is right above that, so water runs down and, tries, and pools on the Earth, but it doesn't kind of get under the Earth. Um, above the water is air, which is what we breathe and where we live, and then above that is fire. And so when something's burning, the fire goes up. Why? Well, its place is above the air, and so that's where it goes. And air's when you put air under water, it bubbles to the top. Well, that's where it's placed. And so it, they kind of saw um, the elements trying to find their own place. And this was kind of the idea behind medieval cosmology, this idea everything's got its place and its order. They thought it's a very ordered universe, and so things try to get in their place to where they belong. Now, above the ring of fire, above the air, I don't know exactly what they thought about this fire. I think they thought once it kind of started getting up above the air, it became clear and maybe non-existence or whatever. The, the fire that we saw on the earth was dirty fire. That's why it had all the flames and smoke. But once it got up there, it became invisible. They saw this, this realm of the four elements ending where the moon was. And it, when they saw the planets moving, they didn't just kind of see balls floating in the air or moving through the air. They kind of envisioned them as um, encrusted into a clear crystal sphere that spun around. And they saw the Earth as being kind of the center, non-moving part of the universe, and the planets moving um, around the Earth, a spherical Earth, but still moving around the Earth. And so, and the dividing line was the realm of the moon. This is where the end of being in the earth and it's kind of changing elemental movements with people in here and bad stuff happens here uh, there's death there's this is where the fall is really impacted they kind of thought that where the moon was that's where everything above that was uh, pure and perfect and you got these perfect spheres moving in these perfect motions and this was kind of like a different even existence than being on the earth and it had different rules and stuff like that. And they, as they saw it, they saw that the movement of these spheres that the planets were embedded in impacted what was going on in the Earth. But, you know, they knew about uh, seven planets. And so as they saw it, above, above the Earth is the moon. And above the moon is Mercury, then Venus. Then they saw the sun moving above Venus. And then Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Or I'm not sure exactly which order they saw it in, but these were the things. Jupiter, Mars, Saturn the Sun, Venus, Mercury, and each one of the planets kind of had an influence on life on Earth. This is, they saw, the influence of the planets. And as they saw the planets, you know, uh, Saturn is kind of had this, its, its influence metallically was lead, and it was kind of like bad luck. Once it hit Earth, it was bad luck. Now, you know, Saturn, the planets aren't considered evil in themselves, they have good influences like causing contemplation and Saturn's associated with just like age, maybe wisdom. But once it gets to Earth and hits our under the moon area where the air is, it, some of the planet's influences came out bad because we're living in a fallen world. And so it's kind of the 
source of misfortune. Under that was Jupiter, which is kind of like the kingly planet, which is associated with actually like generosity and a king in his rest where he's just ready to share out of his bounty. Um, and Jupiter is associated with tin. Uh, Mars is um, associated kind of with war and is a bad influence as well, kind of like Saturn. Um, but in the good way, it's also associated with martyrdom, so the willingness to die for a good cause. So Mars bad is just a willingness to kill, <laughs> but Mars good is a willingness to die for God or for truth, and iron is its metal. Uh, the sun is associated with like wisdom, gold is its metal, and it brings good luck. Venus is associated with love and beauty and probably life as well. Its metal is copper, and it's a good influence. Uh, Mercury is an uh, interesting one because, you know, if you think of the metal Mercury, which is its metal, which you think of it, it's like this shiny thing that's just always moving and changing shape, and it's kind of hard to describe what Mercury is associated with other than, like, change, curiosity sometimes. Um, but when you call somebody mercurial, like, they're hard to describe, hard to pin down, hard to... Um, hard to like say this is what this thing is it's mercurial it's always changing that yeah that's mercury and uh, the and the dividing line is the moon it's associated with silver and produces wanderings so people who like to explore are influenced by the moon but also we get um the word lunatic from their word luna which is what they called the moon the word lunatic means somebody who's like mind is wandering right somebody's kind of crazy their mind is wandering they wander around aimlessly and so this is kind of, and then above this, they had the stars, and above that, they had this thing called the prima mobile, and that means like the first movement. The idea being that, you know, they notice that nothing kind of just starts moving all on its own. Things need to get moved in order to have movement. So where does all the movement from the solar system come from? Well, there's this thing above that that influences things to move, and then beyond that is the realm of heaven and God and his perfection. That is a very brief description of how they looked at things, and um, and it's just interesting for me. I'm not saying it's right. I don't believe in a, the earth at the center of the universe, but I like to understand how they were thinking. And it was very interesting because they loved the orderliness of thinking of these things. And they didn't say think that things were perfect, like nothing went bad. But they, when they looked at a universe, they didn't see empty space with just these meaningless balls of gas or um, stuff floating around, sometimes crashing around. They saw a full universe an ordered universe with things in its place and i just it's just great to know this so you know all this medieval cosmology came to an end when they started developing more math and better telescopes and they could see clearly what was going on differently um, and it caused a bit of a stir and you know anytime you have to change how you look at the entire universe it's not easily done or pleasant but there you go. If you've ever wondered how medieval people, people who kind of lived um, before the printing press, before uh, Calvin, before uh, modern age, how did they look at the world? Well, a lot of them looked at the world like that. And there you go. So now you're uh, in my nerd club and welcome. You're welcome. And uh, maybe sometime we can get together and push up our glasses push our glasses up our nose together just for fun all right well i hope you have a great weekend it's been great and i hope you are blessed